Join with me, please, in Matthew uh, chapter 14 and chapter 15. Matthew 14 and 15. Clyde Evans was one of our state missionaries here in the state a number of years ago. He's since retired to Cochrane, Georgia. And Clyde was a regional missionary in central Georgia in an area that covered up Perry, Georgia, where they have the national fair every year. Uh, quite, a, quite a fair. I guess that's the state fair, is it not? National. national. Okay. Well, does the rest of the nation know about it if it's the national fair? Okay. All right, you do. Okay, well, that's all that counts. Um, but in any case, it, it's like, a, in many ways, a, a very large um, county fair, but statewide or apparently national. In a few minutes, it'll be global. But um, he, uh, he would try to do outreach there in uh, the fair when that happened. And how he did that is that he set up a baby comfort station, uh, which was a tent with several rooms in it where uh, mothers or parents could come feed their children, uh, nurse their children, or change their diapers. And um, he uh, had this one family come in, uh, uh, an infant, her mother, and her grandmother. And Clyde got into a conversation with the grandmother, a fine and very committed Methodist woman, and she asked Clyde about the uh, baby comfort station. He explained what they were doing and how they shared the gospel while there and all. And she said, just leave it to Baptists to share the gospel when changing a baby's diaper. <laughs> well, you know something? There, there's something real, real neat about that. I like that. And I appreciate all that everyone is doing as far as that's concerned. But uh, the most important thing in the world is to give your heart and life to Christ. Now, that's real basic. And I know a lot of people aren't impressed with those kinds of things. But I have to tell you... Uh, I am absolutely thrilled that somebody told me and I had the opportunity to give my heart and life to Christ. Everything is different. Everything is different, including eternity. So I appreciate the ministry that Clyde and so many others had. Never, ever underestimate the value of one. Never underestimate the value of one. It was through one of Adam and Eve's sons that the promise came, and that was the son Seth the third-born child. Of all the sons of Terah, it was one through whom the promise would come, and that's Abraham. Of Abraham's sons, uh, Ishmael and um, uh, Isaac, and then his sons with the Keturah, uh, there was just one, Isaac. Uh, when Jesus talked about one, it was very significant. Uh, there was a shepherd that left 99 sheep and went after one and sought it until he found it. The woman uh, that lost her coin, a dowry coin, that really in that day judged the worth and value of her in marriage. She'd give it to her husband, her husband's family. I'm, you know, I'd like the return of that system, but it was just one coin that she lost, and she searched for it till she found it. And then there was one son, one son that was lost, the prodigal son, and his father waited on him till he, till he came home. Never underestimate the value of one. We are still living all these centuries later with the story and the impact of each of those ones. And that's why March 26 is so terribly important. Invite your one. Now, you will have a card distributed to you. If you haven't already, you'll need to place it in the offering plate before March 19th. And if you'll do that, I'm sure somebody's going to uh, appreciate uh, appreciate that. Well, in Matthew 14 through 15, we find some help 
with this endeavor, and we find several topics here. And the first is the mark of missions. Now, baptism marks disciples, those on mission for Christ. And baptism means a death, the death of Jesus and our death and our death to sin and the world and all. And there are several deaths that are found here in um, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, when John baptized and when he himself was baptized, he was committing himself to the point of death for Jesus. And beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, not, not John, John's already dead by this time, but he heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. You see the shift there? He heard a report about Jesus and all he did and said, this has got to be John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Now if Herod, the adulterous, murderous tetrarch of Galilee, could believe in resurrection, then the liberals can too. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Now technically, legally, she was Herod's wife, but spiritually and before God, because he stole her and seduced her, it says his brother Philip's wife. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, never, ever declares her Herod's wife. Verse 4, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, some preachers would preach that today and go, it's not lawful for you to have her. But John thundered at the Jordan and declaimed against sin in high places. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now this is not a little girl in a cute little dress with a white patent leather shoes and bows in her hair doing a sweet little thing. That, that's not what this is. Okay. Uh, in fact, um, most likely Herod was in a banquet room with his men and um, uh, his wife Herodias, the mother of the stepdaughter his stepdaughter was over in another banquet room, and so the mother was not able to order the behavior of the daughter. And before all of these men, she uh, apparently was rather lewd in her dancing, and the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. Then it goes on, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, Mark's very clear there's a lot of drinking going on here, so he's drunk out of his mind, and he can't do this. He doesn't have the authority to do verse 7. And he promises up to half his kingdom. He can't do that. That's up to Caesar. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Oh, what a dignified request. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And watch this. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Have you ever thought about that? I have, but I didn't want to do it too long. And she brought it to her mother. Now, what does it take for a teenage girl to take a bloody head on a platter and deliver it to mama? 
Most teenage girls I know would pass out or run. But she has the malevolence of character to carry it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. Now usually sons would do that, but it doesn't appear John was married, didn't have sons. And went and they told Jesus. Uh, John's life is marked by death. And there are several deaths that appear in this, bi- in, in this text. One, a death of un- understanding. Uh, John hears about Jesus and confuses him with John. And he ascribed the powers of Jesus to the resurrection of John the Baptist. Now, he was entirely wrong. But Herod did not have the mental capacity to expand his thinking about God beyond what was already in his head. God had to act consistently with what was already in his head, and he couldn't break loose from it. And so he's wildly confused and living by his, um, his superstition. He, in other words, misunderstood Jesus when, folks, it's really hard to misunderstand Jesus. If you misunderstand me, I understand that. But if you're in the first century and you misunderstand Jesus, something's wrong. The Pharisees didn't misunderstand him and the Sadducees didn't. The rulers and the scribes didn't misunderstand him. Oh no, they understood him so well they plotted to kill him. That's how well they understood him. But here Herod misunderstands Jesus. He projects himself onto Jesus and gets confused. Whenever you follow Jesus and seek to implement his mission, you are running the risk of being misunderstood. And sometimes there's not a thing you can do about it. Have you ever met anybody whose mind was, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with any facts. That's what we have here. So there's the death of understanding. Then there's the death of freedom. Uh, And by the way, let me return to the death of understanding. Because of that, because you're running the risk of being misunderstood, you can't be too thin-skinned. Now, you can't be so thick-skinned that you're insensitive, but you can't be too thin-skinned. Reminds me of what Vance Habner said. He said that, uh, uh, and I'll say this about those of you that are on mission for Christ, uh, what he said about pastors. He said, a pastor's got to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a shepherd, and the hide of a rhinoceros. And that's what we've got to have. Can't be too thin-skinned. Then, uh, freedom. Verses 3 through 5, uh, John lost his freedom and lost his life. In fact, there are many around the world suffering that today, more so lately than previous centuries. Uh, We've had more Southern Baptist missionaries killed on the field in the last uh, 15 years than we did the previous 150. And that's not unusual around the world. New Tribes Mission, in fact, are most likely to suffer death among the American missionaries uh, because they go not to the cutting edge but the bleeding edge, the most difficult places in the earth, and they intentionally, strategically go and take their families there. And uh, so they're oftentimes kidnapped and killed and, and uh, suffer. Uh, behind that would be some other groups in Southern Baptist are behind that. Um, 60% of Southern Baptist missionaries are in uh, uh, security areas. They're labeled one, two, and three. One, the safest. Two, and three, the most dangerous. And 60% of our missionaries are in two and three. Uh, but uh, it's usually not American missionaries that will suffer too much. They, the worst thing that usually happens to them, usually. Now, again, more have been killed lately than before. But usually what happens is that they get expelled from the country, and it's the nationals that are arrested, imprisoned, and sometimes executed. And so that, that's not a bit unusual. Then uh, there's a death of reason. In an utterly unreasonable turn of events, 
John turned, uh, Herod turned John over to the executioners at the request of his stepdaughter and, his, um, and her manipulative mother. Uh, he promised up to half his kingdom, and that was careless. He, he saved face before his guests. That was cowardly. His execution, I believe, was criminal as well. Now, a lot of the world will demand of us Christians that we live by reason, but then they will spoil their case by dismissing it when it becomes inconvenient or when reason is not very, uh, uh, very encouraging to their case. Uh, what we find here, though, is that many end up suffering because people don't think and they don't think well. And a lot of times when they don't think well, it's because they don't want to think well. This is not a pretty picture. This is not going to make anybody happy. It wasn't intended to. This is what happened to the greatest man that ever lived, according to Jesus. So they, this is the mark of missions. Then uh, there's the Lord of missions, chapter 14, verse 13 to 21. And there's a second story just like it in chapter 15. But let's begin reading in verse number 13. When Jesus heard it, he heard of John's death, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, here in this text, Jesus shows himself to be very adequate. He is enough. And we have to base our vision, view, and plans on the basis of Jesus' adequacy. Now, I think it's very wise to sit down with pen and paper or finger and keyboard and, and go through and figure when it comes to budgets and plans and calendars and things like that. But there comes a point in time where you've got to take all that and set it aside and go before God and say, God, this is what we can do. Now, what can you do? And we want to make sure that what we have figured on a keyboard does not limit you. We're going to walk by faith. And because he is the Lord of missions. And Jesus' adequacy here shines brilliantly. Now, in verse number 13, Jesus hears about the death of John, and he leaves that region. Now, Jesus was fond of eating with tax gatherers uh, and sinners. He would do that. But apparently they behaved when they were around with he and his disciples. Whenever this wickedness in Herod's realm breaks loose and his uh, relative, John the Baptist, is executed, what you find here is a celebration of sin, murder, lewdness, uh, revenge, these kinds of things, drunkenness. There's an enormous explosion of a sin celebration and Jesus leaves. Well, wait a minute. If Jesus is willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, why won't he stay here? Well, there's a sin celebration that takes place. So let me put it to you this way. I will not hang out in a bar, never will, and will never encourage another Christian to do so. But I will go to a Braves game. Now, the beverages served at both places can be the same at times. Okay? And sometimes the dress, inappropriate sometimes as it is, can be the same. But in one place, sin is celebrated. At a Braves game, it's not, unless the way the Braves play is sinful. Okay? But otherwise, that's not the purpose of a ball game at a Braves stadium. So on one hand, I, I'm very happy to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. On the other hand, I do not want to waste my time in a sin celebration. Now, there might be a few exceptions to what I'm about to say, but it's very difficult to be effective in missions in the midst of a sin celebration. And so mission trips to Bourbon Street in New Orleans probably are not very wise unless you're there at 10 or 11 in the morning. See? 
Uh, and, and that could be applicable in many different places. So Jesus is adequate for purity. Then he's adequate for maturity. Verses 14 to 16. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, uh, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Now, usually when people showed up to hear a rabbi teach, they wouldn't leave until he dismissed them. Well, Jesus held them till the evening. And he held them in a deserted place where there are no food supplies. I think this is purposeful, right? And the disciples notice that and they, and they initiate uh, a closing of schedule. Now, this, in my opinion, justifies very long sermons. So he, um, he's in a deserted place. The hour is already late. So he's preaching at least an hour, and then he goes on. <laughs> they, and so here's their solution to the hunger and the circumstances. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Well, but it's a deserted place. They don't see any villages. So they're going to have to travel a long distance to find any villages with foodstuffs. And there are at least 5,000 men, and you've got to add to that women and children. Well, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, well, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, that struck them just like it struck you. Well, okay, there are 12 of us, and there are thousands of them. And the master who calms the seas is telling us to give them something to eat, is what he's telling us to do. Jesus here puts them into a position where they've got to have divine intervention to meet the need. That's the story of missions. Do not be surprised if Jesus stretches you in order to do missions. He always does. In fact, if you can look at something and say, no, I can do that, it may not be from heaven or it may not be that way long. Something's going to interfere with that mission plan to make it much larger, if it's in God's will, much larger than you could ever imagine. So he's adequate for maturity. He's trying to mature their faith. And, and they've got to because they're going to go north and west over to Rome and Spain. They're going to go north and east all the way to China and India. And they're going to have to have divine intervention at several places and several points uh, to, uh, to meet the need. Then he's adequate for Israel, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 14, verse 17 to 21. And then he said, uh, and they said to him, well, we have only five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus scratches his head and says, well, we've got to do something else. We, this isn't going to do. Is that what he says? No. He said, bring them here to me. And that was enough. And he commanded the multitude to sit on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up as many baskets as they had tribes in Israel and disciples. Twelve. Which is terribly representative. It's intentional. It's purposeful. Uh, these baskets are probably the personal baskets of the disciples. They would use those to carry their clothes around in. They're, they're a bit smaller. But there are twelve basketfuls of fragments. So Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and multiplies it to feed thousands and their leftovers. The grace and the power of Jesus Christ is always more than enough. It always surpasses what is necessary. And so in verse 21, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and 
children. I think this is very representative. Most commentators would agree that uh, what Jesus is demonstrating here is that he is adequate for the 12 tribes of Israel, the lost nation of Israel. Now, you might sit back and say, well, you know, it's Israel. It's not relevant to me. Don't commit hermeneutical narcissism, interpretive narcissism. Just because it doesn't immediately look like it relates to you doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Be really, really careful. Jerusalem, is, Jerusalem and Israel are two of the most relevant subjects in the entire Bible to Gentile Christians. Do you know why? In fact, Jerusalem and Israel are more relevant to your future than Washington and the United States. Because Jerusalem will be the capital city of the kingdom when Christ returns. And he will establish his throne there and sit on the throne of his father David, which is what Gabriel told Mary when he made the Annunciation. Um, it's really remarkable to me that five loaves and two fish become enough to feed this enormous crowd. Little is much when it's given to Christ. And Jesus oftentimes arranges things that way. Then he's adequate for the world. Now look over at the end of the next chapter, beginning in verse 32, and we find something very similar. It's not as large a crowd, about a thousand fewer men, but Jesus still has compassion. He tells the disciples to give them something to eat, and he feeds this crowd. And in verse number um, 36, he multiplies uh, the loaves. In verse 37, they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large basketful of fragments that were left. So the first, there are 12. These are smaller baskets. Uh, the, the, the second feeding of the 4,000, there are seven baskets, but the Greek word used here indicates a much larger basket. It's, it's entirely possible they took up more food, more fragments with the seven than they did with the 12. But many have wondered, well, why 12? Why, why, why 12? Why seven? Why did Jesus multiply the food enough? Now, he's doing this purposefully. This is not unrestrained. The production line doesn't get out of control. He intentionally multiplies the loaves into enough to feed 4,000 with seven basketfuls of fragments afterwards. Why? Many believe that what Jesus is doing in the first miracle is showing he's adequate for Israel. What he's doing next with these seven basketfuls is showing himself adequate for the seven nations of the Canaanites. Talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, per you know, all, all those. And, and is what he's doing. Jesus Christ is showing himself adequate for the world. And that is to say, Jesus is adequate for your neighborhood. Jesus is adequate for your family. He's got them on his heart more than anybody else does. Jesus is adequate for Indian Town. He's adequate for the United States. And any time he meets repentance and faith, heaven kisses earth and a soul is saved and eternity is changed. Jesus Christ is adequate. He is what we need. Of course, I do recall what someone said one time that we don't know Jesus is all we need sometimes until he's all we have. And so don't be surprised if at some point in your life Jesus arranges circumstances to where he's all you've got. He'll do that. And that's what happened here in the text. There's a third subject and that's the agents of missions. The agents of missions have got to acclimate themselves to impossible Assignments. Now, we looked at this text Sunday uh, with Jesus walking on the water and Peter joining him. There's impossible patience in verses 22 through 23. Uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and the crowds are in a white messianic heat. 
They're in a fervor, and they want to rush Jesus to the throne, and so he disperses them. His agenda, his vision is polluted, and he splits up the crowd and disperses them because it's simply not time. So missions does mean a death to self, even some worthy things that we think are worthy. They had to die to themselves. And then there's an impossible mission, verses 24 through 36, when Jesus walks on the water towards the disciples. Now the rub here is that they look off into the distance and they see something walking on the water and they assume it's a ghost, some kind of apparition. But Peter is a little more sensitive. And Peter has maybe grown a little bit more than the others. And he looks and initially it appears as a ghost or an apparition, but it gets closer and he thinks, wait, that might be Jesus. And to identify, to identify Jesus, Peter knows what it's going to take to make sure that it is Jesus. He says, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come walk on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter walks on water for a moment. In other words, the way Peter identified Jesus was to put Jesus in a position where he would tell him to do something that is humanly impossible. Oftentimes when God moves in our lives and leads us to do something, it will resemble walking on water. Forgiving somebody, that feels like walking on water sometimes, doesn't it? Um, a, a, a move, new employment, whatever it may be, a mission trip, saving money for something like that, increasing missions, giving, whatever it may be. When it comes to being involved in the mission of Christ, sometimes it will resemble walking on the water. Uh, then there's the message of missions. Um, without the knowledge of sin, the gospel makes no sense. Now, in a less spiritual crowd than this, somebody would say, oh, no, we're going to talk about sin, hell, and death again. Well, it just keeps coming up in the text, and that's what we have here in chapter 15. It does remind me of the preacher that preached on hell one Sunday, and a fellow came up to him and said, you know, when I come to church, I really want to hear about the meek and mild Jesus. And the preacher said, well, that's where I got my information. And that's true. That's true. Um, here we find among the scribes and Pharisees that sin is externalized. It's defined as an external thing, which is essentially the Muslim doctrine of sin. And in that day, the doctrine of sin among the Jews. But then Jesus internalizes it in verses 10 through uh, 20. Uh, let's look there. The scribes in the Pharisees in verse 1 of chapter 15 uh, uh, were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, Well, why do you, your disciples, transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The notion was is that if you didn't wash your hands appropriately according to their religious traditions, now they're not biblical traditions, they are human fabrications that are supposed to make one more right and holy before God before eating. So the Pharisees and others were so committed to holiness, they let it affect their eating, and not just their eating, but also how they washed their hands before they ate. That's how rigid and how intense they were. And, and, and the laws of the Old Testament weren't enough for them. They invented some more. That's what they did. And they fell to pieces when Jesus and his disciples did not observe these human fabricated rules. That's what happened here. And so they said, Jesus, why aren't you doing this? You're, you're, you're defiling yourself before God. And look what Jesus does. Well, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? 
See, in verses 1 and 2, they say, why are you transgressing the tradition of the elders? And Jesus says, why are you transgressing the command of God? Here's how they do it. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And he quotes Isaiah to affirm his point. What the Pharisees and others would do is they were, in Israel, expected to be their parents' social security system. Children were their parents' social security system. There's no private social security, uh, except for children. Children are the private social security. But the Pharisees had a way around that. Uh, they would declare all their possessions and resources as a gift to God. And the word they used was korban. They would call it korban. And that is, they retained use of all their possessions exclusively until they died, and then it went to the temple. What happened? Well, how convenient. But the scripture said, honor your father and mother. The implication is, be their social security system. You're supposed to take care of them in this system um, uh, when they're older and they can no longer work and provide for themselves. So that, that's what it meant to honor your father and mother in first century Israel. Uh, is, uh, so that, that's what the scripture commanded, and yet they had this spiritual way and traditional way of disobeying God. Chuck Colson said one time that religion has been the biggest headache God's ever had. And Jesus put his finger on it right here. It can be. And you know why that happens. Because people end up having more of a relationship with tradition than they do God. They can. They can have more of a relationship with a bulletin and a silly church picture on the front. They can have more of a relationship with a color of carpet, with a form of worship. And it's especially pernicious in worship because that's, that's where your people tend to participate more relationally with God is there. It can happen there. It can happen with a location. It can happen with property. Oh, my soul. It can happen with a translation of the Bible. Oh, my goodness. It, it, the, let, let me say it to you. The human heart Karl Barth said, is a place where there is constant idol manufacturing taking place. The human heart is always looking, longing, lusting, wishing for some idol to take the place of God, and you've got to fight it nearly every day. That's what we got here. Um, and it's not just tradition. Hey, I know people that are traditional about not being traditional. That can be a problem too. I've seen churches ruined by that. And so the, the point here that Jesus is pointing out is that they had a pious, spiritual, religious, traditional, nonsensical way of disobeying God. And that's what took place here. And so uh, what they essentially did is that they defined sin on the outside. Jesus transitions in verse 10 and says, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man before God, essentially, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles man. So Jesus put all of our words and made them accountable. And he summarizes all this in verse number 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, 
false witnesses, and blasphemies. So Jesus said the problem with defilement for God, for, before God is not the violation of these traditions. The problem is rooted in the heart. And so when it comes to missions, you've got to get to a deeper structure and have a methodology that leads people to real, genuine transformation and change and not merely a veneer and religious traditional covering that keeps them from experiencing that transition. Uh, my uh, mentor, uh, PhD mentor and, and boss at Southwestern was Keith Idle. He's coming in November, by the way, to do some lectures on missions. And he's just brilliant. And he's, he's brilliant in the classroom with all the academics. He's consulted often about that, but he is excellent in the pulpit and constantly demand, in demand as an interim and as, uh, as, a, um, as a preacher uh, all over the nation. And uh, so he'll be with us. But he, his first doctorate, <laughs> he's got two, but his first doctorate um, was on developing a Christian ethic among Cameroonians in West Africa. The Cameroonians um, had a challenge, as many uh, cultures uh, south of the equator do, with polygamy. And when a man would come to Christ, the church would then face, and the new convert would then face, what do I do with all these wives? Okay? Now, I don't, we don't want any jokes about multiple wives, okay? Just don't go there. And I know I just suggested it, and I'm not going there, okay? But what, what do you do um, with, with that? Because uh, oftentimes kings of tribes would come to the Lord, and they'd have 7, 8, 10, 12 wives and a passel of children. You know, that's a Jerry Clower word, by the way. A passel of children uh, that they were responsible for. So what do you do? Um, in, in some context, what missionaries would do is that they would rail against that. And as a result, either kings would not come to Christ because they felt a responsibility for these women and these children, or they would, and they just cut them all off, throwing them into destitution. So what, what do you do? You know, the Bible the Bible's very clear, one man, one woman for life, and on one hand, but on the other hand, if you're a father and a husband, you've got to be responsible, see? So what do you do? Well, instead of railing and hitting it broadside or having a head-on collision with polygamy, what uh, Dr. Idle did is that he would lead them through a process, a patient process of Bible study, to go through the Scripture to see what the Scripture taught about, about monogamy, about one man, one woman for life, and related issues. And he would help them look at the biblical text and let them ask questions, and over a period of months, they themselves would come to the conclusion that it was one man, one woman for life, and then they'd have to take responsibility for the other. So here's what they would do. They would publicly declare or renew their vows to their first wife, but then, and, and then have relations only with her, romantic relationship just with the first wife, and the others they would financially take care of, but it became clear to the community that these were not the king's wives, but they were his responsibility. So financially, there was no remarrying for these ladies, by the way. They weren't going to remarry. That just wasn't going to happen. And so uh, there would be no divorce, but he would make it clear, she's it, she alone. And he would take care of those children, and he would take care of those women until their death or until his death is what would happen. So you in, he ended up maintaining and coming to the conclusion that he needed to maintain and financially take care of these, but have a romantic marital relationship with just one. The alternative to that is to hit it broadside 
and just wreck the whole society and wreck the whole culture and wreck a reputation. We've got to be wise in how we handle many of these things. And so when I was a youth minister, I would follow something similar. Uh, when I tried to get kids to clean up their music and television and entertainment, instead of hitting them broadside, we'd go through the scripture and look at holiness and the, the relationship of the mind and heart to holiness and purity. And then I would print out the lyrics of the music and the top 40 songs that they were listening to. Okay? And you should, you should have seen some of the things that happened. They would look at the lyrics and they would... I, I have seen kids jump like that. I almost pull a Kramer, you know, when they looked at some of the lyrics. They had no idea that that's what they were allowing to go through their mind and that, uh, that they were uh, themselves singing and enjoying and purchasing. It broke some of their heart. And so leading them through Bible study and then having them examine, even in a group setting, uh, these kinds of things would make a uh, big difference. If you hit it broadside, what they do is that they turn it off when they drove onto the church property and crank it real loud when they left. See? Well, I wanted them to pursue holiness and purity before God. And I really wanted them to be discipled by Christian music. There's a fifth item here that I want to cover real quickly, but um, uh, I will expand on, on Sunday. This is my text for Sunday. But Jesus leaves the traditional boundaries of Israel and goes to Tyre and Sidon. Now, when you hear of Tyre and Sidon, what Old Testament personality do you think of that came from Tyre and Sidon? And I'll give you a hint. She was a, a woman. She was the wife of one of Israel's kings. R.G. Lee preached about her in Payday Someday. But Can I phone a friend? <laughs> can you phone a friend? Uh, one other preacher preached a message on her entitled Painted Dog Meat. Okay, it's, it's going to come clear when I tell you. Who? Jezebel. That's right. It was Jezebel. Jezebel came from Tyre and Sidon, married Ahab and wrecked Israel, plunged it into uh, awful idolatry. But there was another woman that came from Tyre and Sidon. And that's this woman in verses 21 to 28, a Canaanite woman who trusted Jesus enough to bring to her her daughter. Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, the picture and epitome of Old Testament evil of the Canaanites. And he gave them a second chance to repent and get right with God. And one woman did, and there was marvelous rejoicing in that woman's home because Jesus healed her. Now, um, Jesus says to her in chapter 15, uh, verse um, number 28, O woman, great is your faith. He only said that one other time to any other person. Great, great is your faith. He said it to the Gentile centurion who asked for healing for his servant. And in both cases, Jesus says, great is your faith. And in both cases, he healed the daughter or servant from a distance. Didn't go to their home. Didn't have to. So what Jesus is finding here is fertile ground in the most unlikely place. It's kind of like vitamins. One fellow said, uh, one little boy was really confused why God put so many vitamins in spinach and not in ice cream. But that's where you find them. That's where you find them. You may find enormous opportunities for the gospel of Christ in some of the least likely places. And I love how God is shaping our heart and mind for missions through His Word. Let's pray together. Father, how we love You and thank You for Your Word. We exalt You and praise You. And we want to pray that You'll make us strong in Your ways and that we would approach our world just like Jesus does. We pray for our one. Help us to have the love and help us to have the power of the Holy Spirit 
and praying for them and inviting them. And Lord, even creating opportunities to make sure our friends have the gospel of Christ. Make March 26 a great big day. And then two other days in April, uh, both Easter Sunday and our crusade with Steve Foster. Thank you for the opportunity there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.